0: Have we got the picture up? Got a little photograph here. There we go. Now that looks right, doesn't it? Our guest speaker is Greg Gilbert. Some of you, I think you all know that. He's from 3rd Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. And they're a big red of a different red. But uh, this week, Greg flew in early, so he could be indoctrinated into our Husker football. Even though things are down a little bit, we're going to bounce back, right? So it was kinda fun to get Greg there on the homeland, and he had the opportunity actually to do some lunch studies with the Husker athletes from the football, basketball, various sports, and then even also got to do a luncheon with some of the Husker coaches. So he got his experience there, and that's been fun. But I know he's been looking forward to today. Uh, Some of you know Greg from the Fellowship of Christian Athletes summer camp, and so you've got familiar over the past few years. So he has partnered us with us in ministry, so we're excited about that. But he is a pastor in Louisville, and we're excited to have him. He's written books like What is the Gospel, his new book called Favor, and we're pleased to have him here with us today. So let's greet Pastor Greg Gilbert.
1: Good morning, y'all excited to be here? Oh yeah, y'all sound like it. All right, I know it's a little cold outside, it's a little early, it's a little dark, but I'm gonna try that again. Are y'all excited to be here? Okay, yeah, you need to be. Come on. I'm uh, uh, if if y'all let that picture get out, you may get me fired because uh, my church is located like literally across the street from the University of Louisville, and so if if I am shown on the Nebraska football field smiling like I'm smiling there, you literally could get me fired. So we need to make an agreement with each other that you're not going to tweet that picture, you're not going to do any, Gordon, where are you? No tweeting that picture, okay, because I don't want to get fired. All right. How many of you play sports of some kind? Raise your hand if you play, a bunch of you play sports. Okay, cool. What, What sports do you play? Just yell some out. Cross country? Yeah, all right. What else? Football. Soccer, basketball, track—the whole track. I mean, there's a lot of track events. Like what track? Huh? Rowing. Rowing. That's not a track. <laughs> you ever try to row a boat on a track? That's not easy to do. So I played. I played. Uh, I played a bunch of sports when I was in. When I was. Well, let, let, me, let, me see who, let me see who else I'm talking to here. Raise your hand if you're in middle school. Any middle schoolers? What, are y'all embarrassed about it? You're like all down here. Put your hands up if you're in middle school. All right, yeah, be proud of it. Middle school's good. I got, I got a, uh, a son that's in sixth grade, and he's excited to be in middle school. You guys seem embarrassed about it. Anybody in high school? Who's in high school? Oh, oh okay, y'all are more proud of it. All right, who's a senior? Raise your hand if you're senior. Okay, put them down. Junior's sophomores, a bunch of sophomores, and freshmen. Yeah, so I got a son that's a freshman. He's 14, y'all 14 years old, give or take? All right, 13, 14, 15, something like that. Uh, yeah, my son's a 14-year-old, he plays basketball. Uh, he's a lot better at basketball than I ever was. I played four years of, of high school basketball at a town about the, size of, uh, about the size of this one, I think. My town was about 1,500 2,000 people, and uh, we, we had a basketball team that was not very good, and, but I was on it from, from like the beginning to the end, and I was terrible at basketball. Like, start to finish, I was terrible. In fact, my uh, junior year, my coach called me into his office, and he sat me down, and he said, Greg, uh, here's the deal. He said, we both, you and I both know that you are really bad at basketball. I said, yeah, coach, I know, I know. And he said, he said by, by all rights, I ought to cut you from the team, because you're really bad at it, and you're not going to get to play. He said, but... He said, I've got a deal for you. He said, because I need you to stay on the team. And I said, coach, why do you, why do you need me to stay on the team? And he said, well, because if we don't average your grade point average into our team GPA, we're going to be put on academic probation. And so I, so I need you to stay on the team. And here's, here's the deal I'm going to make with, me, with you. If you'll stick through this through your junior year and your senior year, I'll let you be the, I'll let you be the captain of the team. When you're in your senior year. And I said, okay, that sounds like a pretty good deal, because I was trying to build my resume, and I thought, well, being the captain of the basketball team is a pretty cool thing. So I did. I stuck it out for for two years. The coach and I had this agreement that the only time uh, he would put me on the court, and really the only time I wanted to be on the court, was if the game was just utterly out of hand, like 20 points or more on on either side, and there were less than two minutes left on the clock. Then the coach would put me in the game. Well, this, this agreement eventually got out among all the fans in Linden, Texas. And so when those conditions were met, when we would hit that two-minute mark and one of the teams was two minutes out, there would be this rumbling chant that would start throughout the gym that said, put Greg in, put Greg in, put Greg in. It was great. Well, senior year rolls around and I literally became the captain of the basketball team. So I would, you know, march out to center court, you know, and shake the other guy's hands. And, you know, I'm like this tall and everybody else is that tall and you know, and and I would shake their hands, we would do all the the preliminaries of the game, and then I would go sit on the bench for the entire game and never get out there. However, I lettered. Do you you guys have letter jackets at, at Nebraska Christian? Yeah, so I got a letter jacket. I'd actually gotten the letter jacket earlier for some like weird academic competition, so it was a weird colored jacket anyway. It wasn't the same jacket as all the the uh, basketball jocks, but anyway, I had my had my letter jacket. It said LK on it, and I thought I'm I'm going to get a patch that says uh, basketball team captain, and have it have it sewn onto my arm. So I went to the went to the place that did the uh, the basketball the the sports patches and everything. I said I want I want a uh, a patch that says uh, basketball team you know captain, and so I ordered it, paid for it, and everything, and. And a couple weeks later, the patch shows up, and it, it's on my jacket already. They had it sewn onto the jacket, and, and it said not basketball captain, but it actually said Captain Basketball. And so <laughs> through, through my whole senior year, though I never played, they called me Captain Basketball, and that became my, my nickname through high school. So, uh, so, so I'm, just, I'm just telling you, I know I'm here in Nebraska, and I know I actually live in Louisville, Kentucky, which is like basketball capital of the world. But uh, I, you're, you're not going to get a whole lot of sports stories out of me because I just don't, I just don't have that many. I, there is one, though, that I can tell you. It's my moment of glory in basketball. Like my, my whole basketball career, this is the pinnacle of, of the whole thing. And it didn't even happen in a game. It actually happened in a warm-up, but I'm still proud of it. So I'm going to tell you the story. So you know how a basketball team will come out and uh, at the end of the, the, the warm-ups and the drills and everything, you'll sort of line up around the, around the paint and a lot of teams will just shoot free throws for a few minutes and they throw you the ball and you shoot the free throw and if you, if you miss it, everybody on the team like claps once, right? So do that. Let's just do it with me, right? You shoot the ball, bounces off the, the rim like it did every time for me and everybody goes like this. That's right. If you make it though, everybody does what? Yeah, that's right, two claps. So, so you swish it and everybody goes, that's right. Now, if you make two free throws in a row, at least on my team, what you got to do was go out to the, the three-point line over here to the, to the edge you know, where there's no backboard and you got to shoot a, a three-pointer while the, the free throws are continuing to be shot. And as long as you were making three-pointers, you got to kind of go around the, the three-point line, and I think there were like nine different shots that you got to take, and you, you could just keep going as long as, you, as long as you could keep making them, which was, you know, usually, usually guys would make one or two or three, maybe four, and it was an incredible thing if they made four three-pointers in a row. Once you missed, you'd come back and get back in line. Well, I hated this whole process because I couldn't, I could barely get the ball up to the, up to the line from the free-throw line, much less the three-point line. And so I just expected that I was going to miss my free throws. Well, this one particular game, we were, we were playing our biggest rival uh, that, in, our, in our district. And we were doing the warm-up thing, and we'd, we'd done this forever. It's this my senior year. And uh, I stepped up to the free, three, uh, the free throw line, got the ball thrown to me, shot the ball as I normally do, and lo and behold, swish, and everybody went, yep. You can do it with me. Okay. Swish, and everybody went, Right. So then I, they threw me the ball back, I shot it again, swish. All right, now it's time for the terrifying part, which is that I have to go out to the three-point line and 90% chance I will shoot an air ball because it's not even, it's the length, first of all, right? You, you just, it's just, I can't get it there, right? I'm just, I'm just not, not, that, not that big a dude. And so, and so then, so the other problem, though, is that there's not even a backboard on the other side. And so the, the odds of me shooting an air ball are enormous out here. But they throw me the ball, and I shoot it, and it goes in. I know, No, you don't clap for those. It's just Nobody cares at that point. They're still doing the free throw thing. So, then, so they throw me the ball again, and, and I come over here to the second shot. I shoot it again. Swish, it goes in again. That's two in a row. I go to the third one, swish. The fourth one, swish. The fifth one at the top of the key, swish. Five in a row now. I keep going. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I make over the next thirty seconds or so seventeen three-pointers in a row. On the eighteenth, back over here at the starting point, I finally shot the air ball. It went all the way over the rim. But by this time, by this time, the crowd is like super into this whole thing. I mean, they're like cheering me on, and this is Guinness Book of World Records stuff. I mean, it's just incredible, and I had a friend who, for whatever reason, was sitting on the other side of, he was sitting, like, on the enemy side uh, with a, I guess, a family member of his or a friend or something, I don't remember, but anyway, he said there was, that there was this, this woman who was sort of just, like, through the whole game, I never set foot on the court the entire game, like, even after hitting 17 threes, you would think the coach would be like, this kid's on fire, you know, and when, I need to get him in, but no, never touch the, the court, and he said that his friend over on the other side, who was rooting for my, my, my team's rival, was just sort of sitting back against the wall. And their team was ahead of us by like 10 or 12 points the entire game. But she just had the worst attitude, and she's like, "Yeah, well, it doesn't matter, we can be 10, 12, 14 points ahead, it doesn't matter, we're going to get beat. And finally, my friend looked at her and was like, what, are you, what is your problem? You're, you're like 10, 12, 14 points ahead the entire game? Why are you so down on your own team? And she said, well... It doesn't matter how far ahead we get. When the coach gets ready, he's just going to put that little number 24 in, and he's going to shoot our eyes out. I never, ever touched the court the entire game because it, it never quite got out of hand. I think they beat us by 18, which didn't meet the requirements, and I never, never got into the game. Anyway, all, all of that is just to say that, that uh, you know, you may be from Nebraska, football capital of the, of the world. Maybe not this year, but, you know, in the past. And I may be from Louisville, Kentucky, basketball capital of the world, but you're not going to get a whole lot from me about sports. Uh, and uh, uh, so just, just prepare yourself for that. I, I do, though, want to talk to you about something that I think is, is, is far more important than that. Uh, and that is that I want to kind of, what I want to do today is going to sound strange to you, especially if you are a Christian. Uh, and you're going to be tempted as soon as I say this sentence to just say, well, I, I can check out, right? I don't have to. I don't have to listen to this because I've already got it. But don't do that because I think we may talk about some things today that will be new to you and maybe even interesting. So uh, don't check out. But what I want to do today, even for those of you who are Christians, is introduce you to Jesus Christ. Oh, boring. I hear about Jesus all the time. I know Jesus. I know who Jesus is. Well, yeah, you might, but what I've found through all the years of my life is that even... So I think I know Jesus as I read the Bible and as I hear the stories about Jesus and put them all together, I'm constantly learning new things about him and learning uh, about who he is and what he's all about. And so hopefully some of the things that we talk about over the next uh, the next couple hours will do that for you, kind of put Jesus into a new light. I think part of our problem when we start talking about Jesus is that we all already think we know him, right? We know the stories about him, we kind of know how all the stories end, and so it, it's not a big deal to us. Well, when people were actually getting to know Jesus, like when his disciples were, were with him and watching all these things happen that they, that they you know, later wrote down in, in the Bible, they didn't know the end of the story. And so when Jesus did the amazing things, they didn't just say, oh, of course, you know, that's happening, or I know the ending of that story. That's why the Bible keeps saying over and over again that they were astonished by him and amazed at what he was doing. And we kind of read that and go, what are you amazed by? I mean, you know, of course, you know, Jesus walked on the water, you know, there's no big deal. We know that that happened. What's so amazing about that to you? But if you think about it, that's an incredible thing. And it would have left you, if you saw it for the very first time, pretty astonished at what Jesus was doing. Well, what I want to kind of do today is try to introduce you, reintroduce you maybe to Jesus in the way his disciples would have gotten to know him a little bit. So first just kind of recognizing, wow, this guy is saying some crazy stuff that normal human beings don't say. And then as time goes on and as they get to know him a little bit better, they start to realize, oh oh my goodness, this, this guy is way more than, than we would have thought at the beginning until they understand everything that he's about. So, so I want to try to introduce Jesus to you like that. And the first thing that, that the disciples would have, would have recognized about Jesus or seen in him is just that he was an extraordinary guy. You ever met anybody like that? That, you know, you just kind of look at him and you watch him and you just kind of realize this guy is kind of not normal, right? Either he's, a, either he's an, an amazing athlete or he's just a great teacher or something, and you just kind of can't take your eyes off of them, right? You're just like, wow, you're just an amazing kind of above the average sort of person. You ever met anybody like that? I bet, I bet you have, or, or at least you've sort, of, you've sort of seen somebody like that on TV, right? Well, in the first century AD, like 2,000 years ago, Jesus was exactly that kind of guy. He was the kind of guy that, that made people marvel and stand amazed at who he was. And in everything that he did, the way he acted, and especially in the way he taught, he just left people amazed. You ever noticed as you read the Bible, how many times the Bible says people were amazed at Jesus' teaching? It's just everywhere. Every time you turn around, somebody is being amazed at Jesus' teaching. And I think a lot of times, we read the teaching that Jesus is, is, uh, is doing, and we get to the end of the story... And we've read what Jesus taught, and we see that the people were amazed, or they were marveling, and we just kind of think, well, why? Why are you, why are you amazed at that? It's just not that, to us, amazing. Well, part of that, I think, is that, that we don't actually understand deeply enough what Jesus is doing in some of his teaching to get why they're amazed. Because they would have understood categories from the Old Testament that we just don't understand. They would have understood things about about God and about their own history that we just don't understand. And so until we kind of install some of that history and some of that programming in our own understanding, we don't really think Jesus' teaching is amazing. But it was, and it it was to them because Jesus was constantly sort of doing these, these things with his teaching that turned presuppositions and turned preconceived notions up on their head and left the people astonished. You ever read about, about Jesus' fights with the Pharisees? He, he would constantly get into these, into these fights with the Pharisees because they would come to him and try to trap him and get him in trouble because, because they sort of wanted Jesus to get off the scene and, and, and he would engage in these kind of intellectual battles with them. And over and over again, he would beat them in these battles. They would try to trap him. They would give him a riddle that they didn't know the answer to and Jesus would come up with the answer to it and all the people who were standing around would just be amazed at, at what he was saying. It was an incredible thing that he did over and over again. Let me, let me give you one example of, of, uh, of what that is. We're not going to turn there in the Bible, but I'm going to tell you the story about it. There was this one particular time when, uh, when uh, uh, the Pharisees came to Jesus, and they already didn't like him. They'd already decided that he was a threat. We want this guy off the scene. And so they said, all right, we've got a plan. We've got a plan to, to nail Jesus to the wall here. And the result of it is either going to be that he's going to make the crowds angry, so that they abandon him and he's not going to be a threat anymore. Or, even better, we're going to get him arrested by the Romans. That was their, that was their plan, and they thought there's really no way for Jesus to, to get out of this thing. And so they come to Jesus, and, and they, 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 they sort of walk up to him, you know, all snake-like, and they say, they say Jesus, we, we know that you are a teacher that is sent from God, and we know that you say true things, and we know that, that you're the kind of person who doesn't doesn't care what other people think about you, and so we know that you're going to give straight answers to any question that we, that we ask you. Now, you can tell, just in what they're saying there, that they're just sort of flattering Jesus and buttering him up to try to get him to answer their question, right? And you can almost, you can almost hear like the snake in their voice. It's like, Jesus, we know that you are, you are truthful, you know. We know that you always tell the truth. Yeah, they're just, they're just, snake, they're just snakes, right? And then the, then the Bible says that, that they had worked on this question that they wanted to ask him because they thought it was going to get him in trouble. And so they, they popped their question to him. And the question is, Jesus, should we or should we not pay taxes to the emperor of Rome? Now, that doesn't sound like a huge, important question to you, I bet, but, but it was a hand grenade that they were throwing into, into Jesus' hands. And what they thought was that that hand grenade was going to explode in his face. Now, now, why is that? Well, because think about the two ways that Jesus could answer, right? On the one hand, he could say, yeah, of course, you should pay your taxes to Caesar. The problem was that the Pharisees had already been sort of secretly, quietly teaching the people that it was wrong to pay taxes to the emperor of Rome. And so the people, all the crowds that were around, were already convinced by the Pharisees themselves that it was sort of blasphemous against God to pay any taxes to Caesar and Rome. So if Jesus answered that question by saying, yeah, of course you should pay your taxes, all the people were going to turn against him, he thought, they thought. And all of a sudden, Jesus' influence was going to be over. They were going to decide that this guy wasn't worth it, and they were going to go away, and that would be the end of Jesus. Well, what was the other answer that he could give? No, don't pay taxes to the emperor of Rome. Well, as soon as that happened, as soon as Jesus said, no, don't pay your taxes to to Rome, what are the Pharisees going to do? They're going to run off and sort of tell the Roman cops to come and arrest him, and Jesus is going to wind up in jail, and that's going to be the end of Jesus anyway. So they thought they had him trapped, right? They thought that that there are only two ways Jesus can answer yes or no. If he answers this way, the crowds are going to hate him, and if he answers this way, the the, the cops are going to come arrest him and throw him in jail. Either way, We're going to be rid of Jesus. So they pop this question to him. Jesus, should we pay taxes to to Caesar or not? And you could see him like rubbing their hands. You know, we got him. We got him. This is going to be it. We've already buttered him up. He can't avoid the question because we flattered him. And now, you know, we're going to nail him with the question. So Jesus, Jesus, first of all, calls them hypocrites because he knows that you know, they've already been teaching the crowds not to pay their taxes to to Caesar and he knows that he knows exactly what they're trying to do to him. And so he looks at the crowd and he says, he says, Somebody give me a give me a coin. What he was asking for was a little coin that was about the size of our of our quarter. Now it was worth more, but it was about the size of a quarter. So you can just imagine like if this was a movie, the whole thing would have gone in slow motion at this point and somebody in the crowd would have would have pulled a coin out of his pocket and gone, ching, you know, and goes slow motion. And Jesus catches it, you know. And, He's got a quarter. He holds it up to the crowd, and he says, he says all right, whose image is on this coin? It's an easy question. It's not like nobody, it's like, you know, if I were to ask you, whose image is on a quarter? You could all answer, oh, some of you don't know. It's, it's George Washington, right? That's whose image is on the coin. George Washington, first president of the United States. Well, this little coin that Jesus asked for from the crowd had an image on it in exactly the same way. Looked, probably looked a lot like the, the one on George Washington, It's was just a stamp with the image of the emperor, Tiberius Caesar. That's whose image was on the coin. So the crowd answers, obviously, the image on the coin is Caesar's image. And Jesus says, that's right. And he flicks the coin back to the guy and he says, therefore, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God's that which is God's. And then the very last line in the story in the Bible is the crowds marvel." And went away amazed. Now you you don't look that amazed about that teaching right now. I mean what's so amazing about that, right? You got the image of the image of Caesar on it, big deal. Pay pay what belongs to to Caesar, right? It's got his image on it, it belongs to him, pay what belongs to, to Caesar. It was an easy thing, right? It was not that big of a, a deal, it seems like. So why, why does the crowd go away marveling and amazed? Is it just because they've never thought about that before? Or is it because you know, they're not as smart as us and it takes a lot more to make us be amazed? Or, I mean, what's going on? Why is that such a big deal? Well, it's not. It's not that, you know, the fact that the coin's got Caesar's image on it and therefore you give that to Caesar because he clearly owns it. That's, that's not where the amazing thing is. The amazing part of what Jesus is talking about there is in the second part. Give to God what is God's. Now, what's, what's amazing about that? Well, it's because every single person in the crowd would have recognized exactly what Jesus was doing. What Jesus was doing is saying, look, this coin has Caesar's picture on it. It's stamped with his image. And what that means is that that coin, because it has Caesar's image on it, belongs to Caesar." It was made with his silver, it was made in his mints, it was made in, you know, by his people, and therefore you shouldn't have any problem when Caesar wants to have those coins back, you shouldn't have any problem giving those coins back to Caesar at the tax rate that he wants. It belongs to him because it's got his image on it. But then, of course, when Jesus says that second part of his sentence, and give to God what is God's, the question becomes, okay, well, if the coin belongs to Caesar because it has Caesar's image on it. What belongs to God because it has God's image on it? And everybody in the crowd would have realized, oh my goodness. What Jesus is saying there is that I may need to give a coin back to Caesar because it has God's image on it. But what has God's image on it? I do. All of me. They would have been thinking back to Genesis chapter 1 where God said, Let us make man and woman in our own image and in our likeness. And so what Jesus is saying is, is, look, that coin has Caesar's image on it, and therefore it belongs to him, and therefore you owe it to him. But guess what has God's image on it? You do. Everything about you as a human being is stamped with God's image, and therefore you belong to God in every fiber of your being. That's what made the people marvel. That's what made the people kind of stand back and go, oh my goodness, you know, not only has, has Jesus, like, just answered this crazy question from the Pharisees, but he's also turned the whole thing around to make this spiritual point that we, as human beings, all belong to Jesus. And so they marveled, and they were amazed. Just over and over again, this kind of thing happened, where Jesus would, would sort of answer the Pharisees' question, but then he would turn it to make a spiritual point that would be, that would be important for the entire crowd to take in. His teaching, over and over again, did that, but... But it wasn't just the teaching. It's not just that he was making good points, right? I mean, I can, I can stand up here and occasionally make a good point in preaching and teaching, right? I can, I can say something that kind of makes you go, oh, that's pretty interesting. And Jesus was doing that sort of thing all the time. But what set Jesus apart from any other teacher in, in, in the world is that Jesus was not just teaching about God who was sort of you know, separate from him. Jesus was actually making claims about himself that no other human being would make. So, for example, right, I can stand up here and I can make good points about the Bible and I could, I could teach about the Bible and tell you some things and, and, you know, hopefully some of the things that I say to you over the next couple hours will be, will be interesting and you'll say, oh, yeah, that's a good point, you know, maybe you'll even go away from this saying, oh, that, guy's a, that guy's a pretty good teacher, I enjoyed, I enjoyed listening to some of those, some of those stories that, that he was telling, but... But what if I stood up here and started saying, listen, I'm going to tell you some things about the Bible, and I'm going to tell you some stories about the Bible, but what I want you to understand, listen to me, this is Greg teaching you right now, what I want you to understand is that everything the Old Testament of your Bible says, everything it says is actually about me. It's about me. When the Old Testament talks about a coming king, when the Old Testament talks about a Messiah, when the Old Testament talks about somebody who's going who's to come and save his people from their sins, that's talking about me. I'm the great king. I'm the king of humanity. I'm the king of the universe. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What are you going to say to that? You're insane! You're absolutely nuts if you're going to stand up there and make claims like that. And yet you read the Bible, and that's exactly what Jesus was doing. He would make these good points about the Bible, but then he would turn around and, and he, would say, he would say stuff like, I and the Father are one. Or if you've seen the Father, you have seen me. Or he would take the, the names of God, right? Like, I mean, what if I, what if I stood up here and I said something like, "Do you know what my name is? You know who I am? I am Yahweh. I mean, your jaws ought to drop, and, and you ought to be running me out of here like with whips, right? You, you ought to be wanting to, to, to say, this is, a, this is a blasphemer. This is somebody who's claiming to be God. It would just be insane, and yet this is the kind of thing that Jesus did all the time. He kept making these claims about himself. And the thing is that the early Christians decided that Not that he was crazy, but that he was actually right in making those claims. Let me show you one place. If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 1. I want to show you this, this one particular place where we see the early Christians making these claims for Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Here's how... Here's how this guy Matthew starts his book about Jesus. He says, he says there at the very beginning of it, Matthew 1. Y'all are still flipping. I'll wait on you a second. Matthew 1, verse 1. He says there, the book of the genealogy. You know what genealogy means? It's a, genealogy is a, a line of descendants, right? This guy had this son, had this son, had this son, had this son, had this son. That's a a genealogy. Or sometimes they'll go backwards, right? This guy had this father, had this father, had this father, had this father. So it can go either direction, but it's it's called a genealogy. And Matthew starts his book about Jesus by saying, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, right there in the very first sentence, Matthew's making an enormous claim for Jesus. He's claiming that he is the Christ. You know what the word Christ means? Technically, Christ just means anointed one. But what it means, if you translate it, is is this person is a king. So you could read that as the book of the genealogy of King Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's what it meant in in the Greek. And so right from the very first sentence, you're just kind of thinking, whoa, hold up, Matthew, you're saying that this guy Jesus is is the king? Well, what are you even talking about? Because as far as I know, Jesus is just this sort of no-account carpenter from Nazareth who does some good teaching where are you getting this idea that he's a king where does that exactly come from and so what Matthew does over the next few verses here is that he runs a a genealogy you know this guy was the was the father of this guy was the father of this guy was the father of this guy and he's trying to show you something important so I'm not going to read the whole thing uh, because some of the names are really hard to, to deal with. But you can see what Matthew does over those next few paragraphs. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, etc., 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 etc. This guy was the father of this guy, was the father of this guy, this was the father of this guy. And it ends up down there at verse 16 with Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the king. right? But then look at 17. 17 is weird. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, that was this big moment in, in Israel's history, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ or the king, 14 generations. What's up with those 14s? And why does Matthew point that out, 14, 14, 14? 14. What, 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 what is he going for there? Well, a lot of people have given a lot of different answers, right? Some people will say, well, those, if you take you take three 14s and divide them into half you've got six sevens and i don't know if you put another seven on the end you've got seven sevens and that's kind of cool i don't know but no that doesn't make any sense now, let me tell you what matthew is doing with those 14s in the jewish uh language the jews had an alphabet just like you and i do right so so what's our alphabet you say it go ahead what's our alphabet Yeah, okay. You've done kindergarten. Good job. Yeah, hey, our alphabet is A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z. Right. Well, the Jews had an alphabet that was very similar to ours. Only it went Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hay, and Vav and Zayin, et cetera, et cetera. Het, Lamed, blah blah blah, 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 blah. Right. That's what their alphabet was. And the way I learned it in school was to sing it to Yankee Doodle. So it was Aleph, Bet, hey, and Gimel, Dalet, and Vav and I doubt they sang it to, to Yankee Doodle, but they, but they did have probably a song that they would teach their little kids, and they had an alphabet just like ours. Aleph, Gimel, Dalid, Hey, Bob Zion. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Now, what they would do when they when they uh, uh, wanted to do numbers was that they did numbers very different from our numbers. So, so what were what, the way we do numbers? Right, they're very different from the alphabet. It's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and zero. Those are our those are our numbers that we put things together. The Jews didn't do that. The way the Jews did numbers was that they took their alphabet, alphabet gimel, dalad, all the rest of it, and they would line up numbers with the various letters of the alphabet. And then they would, what they would do is, is they, they could then take, for example, a name like Greg, for instance, and they would add up the values of the various numbers and come up with sort of Greg's number. Now, I don't remember exactly what mine is. It's something like 23 or something like that. But you could do that with your own name and figure out kind of what your lucky number is or your, you know, your name number. You could figure out what that, what that number actually is. Well, 14 was actually a very, very famous and important name number because what it was, it was, it was, the, it was made up of the letters that, that uh, corresponded to 4 and 6 and 4, right? So do the math in your head, 4, 6, and 4, and what do you get? Four, 14. Somebody said 15. No, it's 14. 4, 6, and 4. 4, 6, and 4 is, is 14. Now, what letters do you think 4, 6, and 4 corresponded to? Anybody have a guess? Well, I'm going to tell you. The three letters that 4, 6, and 4 corresponded to were D and V and D. Do you, DVD, I know. It's like... It's like a prophecy of, of like, <laughs> digital video discs in the Bible. It's amazing. No, actually, it actually has nothing to do with that. See, the other thing about the Jews is they didn't use vowels. All they had were consonants. So, so they didn't have A, E, I, O, and U, really. All they had were, were vowels. And so DVD was actually the name of... David, it's David, yeah, who was the great king of Israel during, during Israel's big golden age, right? He was the best, greatest king that ever was. And so when Matthew calls this out and says, look, Jesus Christ is about 14, 14, 14, the claim that he's making for Jesus is this guy is David, David, David. He is king, king, king. That's what he's saying. So, so when Jesus made these claims that, that, that he was the king of Israel and the king of, and the king of humanity, Matthew is buying every word of it. He's saying, yes, I believe this guy is in fact the king. He's descended from David. He's descended from Abraham. And he has a, he has a claim, a rightful claim to the throne of Israel. Now, the reason that's so important is because the throne of Israel had actually been empty. It had been vacant for like 600 years by the, time, by the time Jesus explodes onto the scene. And the kingship, the throne of David, was a very big deal to the people of Israel. I, it's not that big a deal to us, right? Because here in America, we don't have kings. We have, we have a president, we have Congress, and you know, we have governors of our states, but we, we don't do kingship. That's like one of the main things that we did when we became, when we became a nation, is we just don't have kings. Now, England's got, got kings and queens, right? But, but we don't. But for Israel the fact that they had a kingship that had been established by God and that that kingship had been empty now for 600 years was a huge deal to them. And the way that that throne became empty was a huge embarrassment to the Israelites. Because essentially what had happened is that, that at the very beginning, in the days of, say, King David, the great king, you had one king in Jerusalem who ruled over the entire nation. Well, eventually there was a civil war, and the nation split so that you had two kings that were kind of warring it out to figure out which one of them was going to be on the throne. Uh, but then the big guys started to come in. There was this empire called Assyria that had massive armies. And it came in and eventually destroyed one of, those, one of those kingships, carried the people off into exile. And then a little bit later, about 100 years later, the king of Babylon, which was another enormous empire, came in and captured the king of, of Israel. And eventually just did some horrible things to him and carried him off into captivity too. And everybody thought that the line of David was just dead. They just thought there's, there's nobody who's ever going to be sitting on the throne of David again. The, the line of David is dead. And the question was, look, God promised that there was always going to be a king on the throne of Israel. So, so how can the throne be empty now? How can there be no king in Israel? So it's a huge deal when Jesus explodes onto the scene and basically begins to say, I am the king. I have a rightful claim to the throne. I'm the king. So, so there's this one, one time about a week before he's, he's put on the cross that, that Jesus actually rides into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey. Now, you may not think that's a very big deal, but the kings of Israel would always ride on donkeys. And in fact, a donkey was an expensive animal that, that just spoke of kingship and royalty. And so David would ride around Israel on a donkey to, do, to, to rule the, the nation. So when Jesus gets on a donkey and starts to ride into Jerusalem, it's an enormous claim saying, I am in the place where David once reigned. David's crown is mine, David's throne is mine, and so, and so he rides into the city, and all the people come out, and they're, they're waving palm branches to him, which is a, another big royal thing, and they're throwing their cloaks down, taking their, their coats off, so to speak, and putting them down in front of this donkey, and the donkey's walking over the cloaks, and they're proclaiming Jesus to be, to be the king, and it's a huge deal, because for the first time in 600 years, the throne of Israel is not empty anymore. So Jesus is making this enormous claim to be the king of Israel. Now, now the, here's the interesting thing about it though. Here's the interesting thing about it. If that's all that Jesus had claimed, it wouldn't be that big a deal, right? Because eventually Jesus just, because, partly because he's claiming to be the king of Israel, he's put on a cross and he's executed by the emperor of Rome and that's, that's just kind of the end of it. So if that's all Jesus claimed and did, really not a big deal. Just a kind of footnote in history, let's just move on to, to the next big thing and, and we're done with this Jesus guy. But here's the thing about it. Back in the Old Testament, when God had promised that I'm gonna send you a king, he said some crazy things about that king. So, so let me just read you one Prophecy from this this one particular prophet named Isaiah. Because he's one that, that talked a lot about this king that was going to come. So he's in chapter 9. You can turn there if you want to, you don't have to. There's this prophecy where Isaiah says there's going to be this king. So chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when, the, when they divide this world. Why are they so happy? That's the question, right? Light has shone in the darkness. Everybody's happy now. They've got harvest coming in. Why? Why? Why are they so happy? For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken all the, you know, so all these empires that have oppressed them, they've all been broken apart. How is that happening? Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, every garment rolled in blood is burned as fuel for the fight. There's not going to be any more war. How is all this going to happen? That's the the question. Verse 6 then gives the answer, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. All this joy, all this peace, all this, the end of warfare and oppression, it's all happening because of this child that's going to be born, this son that's going to be given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. So there it is, right? Prophecy of a king who's going to set everything right. Now, you read that for the first time, and you think, okay, well, that, I mean, okay, that's fine, that's a, that's a king, right? I mean, the king is going to come, they're really hopeful about him, he's going to bring a lot of joy, it's going to be, you know, the, the return of the king, right? This is great. There's going to be a great king, he's going to put an end to the warfare. But then you start to read a little bit further, and you realize, hold on, th- this doesn't sound like just your average, everyday king. Because there in verse 6, Isaiah goes on, and he says, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Well, okay. That sounds like a human king, too. No big deal there. Mighty God. Well, hold up. That doesn't sound like a normal king. That's, I, mean, I mean, that's just weird to call a human king mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is just getting, getting really strange. This is not sounding like a human king anymore. And then verse 7. Of the increase of this king's government and of peace, there will never be an end. Wait, what? This king's going to he's going to have a reign that is never going to end. How how does that work because every other king that's ever lived on the face of the planet has an end, right? Not this one. He will sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. I mean, what sort of king sits on the throne like from this time forth and forever, you know, and, and if, you're, if you're a Jew and you hear Jesus saying, you know, I am the king and you remember this prophecy and a bunch of others from Isaiah, you start to think, wait a second, this guy is no normal king. This is, this is something far beyond kingship. This guy is something else entirely. There was one particular night, I think it was night, when Jesus and his, uh, his disciples were sitting around talking. And Jesus said to them, he's, he's been making all these claims, right? I'm the, I'm the king, I'm the resurrection and the life, I'm the, the door, I'm the, the vine. He's been saying all these things. And so this one particular night, I think, he asks his disciples, who, who do people out there, the people that are listening to me teach, who do they say that I am? His disciples give all these answers. They say, well, you know, some of them say that you're, that you're Elijah the prophet, you know, that's come back from the dead maybe. Others of them say that you're... You're Isaiah maybe or Jeremiah or one of the old prophets of the Old Testament that's been, been sort of reincarnated or whatever. Others of them say that, that you might be John the Baptist who just had his head chopped off by King Herod. But, but people say that maybe you've come back from the dead and, and you're, you're John the Baptist. And Jesus says, okay, okay, <laughs> I hear all that. But, but what about you? What about, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And there's this silence across the disciples until one guy, Simon, looks across what I imagine to be a campfire at Jesus and says, you know, I I think in in a kind of whisper, you are the Christ, the King, the Son of the living God. See, I, I think at that moment, all of this stuff that we've been talking about is coming together for Peter, and he finally gets it, right? He's thinking... Jesus is claiming to be the king, and I believe that he's the king, but the king that Isaiah describes is mighty God, and of his in- the increase of his government and of his throne, there will not be any end, and he's going to reign forevermore. This guy's got to be more than a human king. Oh my goodness, this guy is not only the king, this guy is God. See, I think at that moment, Peter got it, and I think it blew his mind. Now, now what else would have led him to think that? What would have led him to think this guy's not just a normal guy. This guy's not even just a normal king. This is God. What would have led him to think that? Well, there were a lot of things. I I mean, there were the times when when Jesus would, would, would walk up to a, a sick person and he would just say, you know, go in peace because your faith has made you well. And the, the guy who hasn't walked in 38 years would stand up and he would, he would walk away carrying the bed that he'd been sleeping on for, for 38 years. There were times when Jesus would walk up to a dead person and say, you know, little girl, get up. And the little girl would, would wake up and cough and, and go away. And, and she's alive when she had been dead. You know, there's a time when he walked up to, to the tomb of one of his friends, Lazarus, who had died of a sickness. And he had him roll the stone away. And the guy was so dead, in fact, that the tomb stank because of the decomposition that was happening of the guy's body. And Jesus calls out to the man, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man comes out of the the tomb. There were just these things that Jesus did that were mind-blowing. I mean, there were even times when Jesus would command creation itself and creation itself would obey him. One of those times was not too long, actually, before Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and what was going on is that the, the disciples were, were about to, and Jesus together, they were, they were going to cross this, uh, uh, this big lake, actually, that they called the Sea of Galilee. The thing about the Sea of Galilee is that it's 700 feet below sea level, so it's, it's very low down into the ground, but it's surrounded by this ridge of mountains all around it that have ravines that come down into the water. And so what would happen is that winds would blow through those ravines in the mountains and whip up storms on the water. And so you'd get these basically hurricanes on the water that could come up without, without notice, right? The winds would start blowing, the water would kick up, and you'd have, you'd have a hurricane on the water just, just that fast. Well, Jesus and his disciples were out on a boat in the middle of this lake, and one of these hurricanes whips up uh, around them. And so so the disciples are scared out of their minds, right? The winds are blowing the ship and the the waves are crashing against the ship and it's getting tossed this way and that way. And they're terrified that the boat is going to capsize and that they're all going to die and nobody's ever going to hear from them again. So what they do is that, that they decide to go to the back of the boat where Jesus in the middle of this hurricane is sleeping. He's taking a nap because he's tired from all the work of ministry and healing and all the rest that he's been doing. And so they, they run to the back of the boat, and they, they shake Jesus awake, and they're like, teacher, we're going to die. You need to save us. Now, I don't know what they expected Jesus to do, right? I mean, what is, what is he supposed to do? Uh, you know, I don't think that they were actually expecting him to do what he ended up doing, I, but I don't know, maybe they just thought he's a great leader. He'll be able to organize us and get us together and sail this ship across the sea or you know, they'd seen him heal some people and turn water into, into wine and all the rest. So maybe they thought, well, maybe he'll just invent like a speedboat motor like right now. And pfft, we can, you know, shoot across the lake and get to safety. I don't know what they, excited, what they expected him to do. But what he did was that he, he got up, you know, maybe he rubs his eyes a little bit. And he says, he says what, are you, what are you guys so afraid of? What are you, what are you so afraid of? And you, I mean, you've got to imagine a guy like Peter, for instance, at that point, who was this firebrand, you know, he's the one that always spoke. Sometimes right, sometimes wrong. you got to imagine him thinking, what are we afraid of? I mean, we're about to die. That's what we're afraid of. Can you just do something, please? And so Jesus gets up and he wipes his eyes and says, what are you afraid of? He walks to the, he walks to the front of the ship and he, he yells out into the, into the wind, be still. And in an instant, the storm stops. And the water goes flat, and the sun comes out, and the birds start chirping. And the disciples stand around going, oh my goodness, (sighs) who is this guy that the wind and the waves even obey what he says? Anybody ever been in a hurricane? No? You guys live in Nebraska. You don't have hurricanes. We don't have them in Kentucky either. But have you ever been, you ever been anywhere near a, a hurricane? you have tornadoes here in Nebraska? Yeah, you got crazy tornadoes. We do too. Have you ever tried to yell at a tornado? How well how does that work? I mean, you go out to the you tornado, you know, you, stop it! It doesn't work. I heard stories, remember hurricane, hurricane Harvey that just hit Florida. I have some family that live in Florida. And there were, there were stories that came out of Florida of people going out to the to the beach with this massive hurricane coming in and trying to shoot it with guns, you know. As as if that's going to do anything. And they actually had to put out these warnings that said, no, don't do that. You don't understand. Because the winds in a hurricane are actually circular, right? They're doing this. And so if you shoot a bullet into those winds, what happens is the bullet goes into the wind, curls back around, and the hurricane shoots back at you. So don't shoot the hurricane. Because A... The hurricane shoots back, <laughs> and B, it's not going to do anything anyway. You can't stop a hurricane by shooting at it, much less can you stop a hurricane by yelling at it, right? And yet, that's exactly what this guy Jesus does. He stands up in front of this hurricane and says, Be still, and the hurricane obeys. It stops. And all the people on the boat are thinking, Who is this guy that, that the wind and the waves o- obey him? There was another time, like, just a little bit later... <laughs> in Jesus' ministry. This is still all before Peter gets it and says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. There's another time where they're out on the same boat in the middle of the same lake, and another storm whips up in exactly the same way. Only this time, the big difference is that disciples are alone, and Jesus is not with them. See, he had sent them ahead, and, you know, they probably thought he was going to, like, you know, walk around the lake. It wasn't that big, actually. In a day or two, you could walk around the edge of it and meet them on the other side, or maybe they thought he was going to hire another boat to get them across. He, anyway, he was going to spend some time praying before he went out. So the storm whips up, and, you know, they've seen Jesus calm the storm once already, and so they're thinking, wow, you know, we could, we could handle this if only Jesus were here. Only well, he's not, and it's just us. And you've got to wonder if any of them tried it. Like, stop it! You know, and it doesn't work. And so they're, they're terrified again. Well, in the middle of the storm, one of them looks out across the water. This is like late at night. They look out across the water, and they see this ghost out there, walking on top of the water, and they're terrified, because it's a ghost that's walking across the water, and so one of them, well, they start to get scared, and they're crying out, like, it's a ghost, it's a ghost, it's a ghost, and, and then eventually the figure says out there, the ghost says, don't be afraid, it is I, and Peter, Peter shows up in the story all the time, he says, he says, okay, all right. If it's you, if it's really you, Jesus, then tell me to get out of the boat and walk on the water out to you. Now now, you got to wonder about Peter at this point, I mean, what was it exactly about what Jesus said out there that made him think, okay, Jesus is in so much control of this situation that not only can he walk on the water, but he can tell me to walk on the water too. I mean, can you imagine that? Like being on the edge of a boat, and, and Jesus says to him when he says that, he says, come on, you know, you, you, you wonder. So Peter puts his, puts his leg over the edge of the boat and puts it down on the water, and instead of his foot sinking, it just hits the water, right? And you can put pressure on it, and, and it's slipping around, I don't know. You know, and, but then he turns around, he puts the other leg out, and he's kind of standing there on top of the water, and then he turns around, and he starts walking on the water, and you know, is it like ice? You know, what, it, you know, what's, what is it? But he, he starts to walk out to, out to Jesus, and you know the rest of the story, right? Eventually, the, the waves start to lap at his, at his legs and his ankles and his, and his knees, and he gets scared, and he takes his eyes off Jesus, and he starts to worry, and, and he starts to sink, and the Bible says immediately Jesus comes in, and saves him when he cries out for help. You know the rest of the story, but here's what's interesting about that story to me. What was it exactly that caused Peter to say something about Jesus gives me confidence that he's in total and absolute control of this situation? Because before Jesus says, take heart, it is I, they're scared to death. After Jesus says, take heart, it is I, Peter's ready to walk on the water. What happens in those words that gives Peter confidence that Jesus is in total control? Well, the answer is in the fact that the little phrase "It is I" is not exactly what Jesus said. Now, that's good English grammar. It's good translation, but that's not what Jesus said. He he wasn't just saying, you know, "Yoo-hoo!" You know, it, it's me. It's me. It's me. Jesus. You know, don't be scared. I'm here. You know, it is I. That's not what he said. Literally, what he said was, "Take heart." I am. Now, if you know your Bible, that's ringing all kinds of bells. Because you know what that phrase I am is? All the way back in the Old Testament, at the very beginning of it, this fellow named Moses, who was a super important leader to the nation of Israel, asked God, the the God of the universe, to tell him his name. And so sometime later, God declares his name to Moses. And you, you know what name he tells him? He says, you're going to know me as the great I am. So when Jesus is out on the water saying, take heart, I am. He's not just saying, you who it's me. He's taking this ancient, beautiful, well-known name of God and applying it to himself. And that's what Peter is recognizing. This guy is in total control. Because he is God. So when he's standing across that campfire, I think that's, that's when it's all coming together for him. This guy's, this guy's not just the king. He's not just a human being. This man is claiming to be God. But see, there's one more, one more little thing that, that Peter was understanding by this point. And this would have been sort of, sort of baked in the cake from the very beginning. And that was that Jesus was also a human right? It's not that hard to tell from the Bible that Jesus is a human. He gets hungry, he, he gets thirsty, he tells jokes, he hugs people, you know, he cares for people, um, he eventually dies on the cross, which is, which is what humans do, we die, right? So, so in every way, Jesus is human, and so what, what Peter is starting to understand is, oh my goodness, this guy is, is, is God, and he's also a, a man, I've seen that very clearly, he's a, he's a human being, so what we've got here is a situation in which God has become a human, And his mind is blown. And the question becomes, why? Why has this happened? Why has God become a man? Why does that need to happen? See, that's the great riddle of the whole Bible. Why did God need to become a human like us? And we'll talk about that in the next session.